You're listening to a book with legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to a book with legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the podcast. Uh, We are going to discuss the last 25 years of fiscal and monetary policy, as well as their structures in the UK. Joining us today is Sir Howard Davies to talk about his book, The Chancellors, Steering the British Economy in Crisis Times. Um, To give everyone kind of some background on on Howard, uh, he is a former McKinsey Company employee, was a special advisor to Chancellor Nigel Lawson. He was also appointed executive chairman, as we'll talk about later, of the FSA when it was first established in 1997. Um, He was also a director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, a non-executive director of GlaxoSmithKline, an independent director of Morgan Stanley, a non-executive director of Prudential, a director of the Tate Gallery, and a member of the governing body of the Royal Academy of Music. Howard is the current chairman of the NatWest Group, the former RBS Group, and the chairman of Inigo, an insurer in the Lloyds of London market. Lastly, and maybe the most important to an Anglophile like myself, Howard is the first knighted guest to join us on a Books with Legs podcast. So, um, Howard, I'm, I'm very glad to have you here. Uh, I'm glad you could visit with me. Thank you. Thank you for the uh, introduction. I'm sorry my CV is so long and complicated. Uh, it, it is quite a resume. Um, I'm sure you mar- you got to marry a lot easier if you could do that as a 22 year old man than than you could as an older man. So let's let's get in. Uh, you kind of I think you kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the book, but I'll ask it just so our listeners can hear um, this. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I did 25 years ago, approximately about well, 22 years ago. I think um, I invited the then living chancellors to come and talk to the London School of Economics. And I just had the idea that it would be interesting to get them to talk to the students, but about running the treasury and the challenges of managing an economy. Um, And uh, amazingly, I mean, I knew a couple of them, so perhaps that helped, Um, but they all uh, agreed to come along and talk. And so I then edited that into a book, which was partly their lectures, if you like, but also a thematic chapter that I wrote telling the story. And that was taking the story from, in fact, uh, the uh, 1970s through to 1997, when the Bank of England became independent and things changed. And so I thought in lockdown, I thought, well, I wonder if I could do the same again and bring the story forward another quarter of a century. And Of course, having people deliver lectures in the lockdown wasn't really realistic, but they had time on their hands and they all agreed to be interviewed. So essentially, this was volume two. Whether I'll be around in another 25 years to do volume three (laughs) is perhaps not so certain, but uh, I thought it would be an interesting point of comparison. And they all rather uh, jumped at the opportunity to 
to talk about it and to sort of compare and contrast the way they'd managed the um, uh, the task that they'd had. I don't have this in my notes, but I'm going to ask the question just because um, I think I have the answer, but I'd love you to answer it. Um, why why do we why do you they refer to the treasury in the UK as the exchequer? What 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 does the exchequer come from? The the word. Uh, well, it's originally uh, a French word, actually. A lot of these things are, but which just meant the. I mean, it's where the origin of of a check. You know that this was where the money came from. Uh, the person, the exchequer, was the person who who sort of could sign the checks, if you like. Sure. Uh, so it's really as simple as that. You paint this Dickens, Dickensian picture of the Treasury as Scrooge on on kind of the opening few pages of your book. Um, is that a fair way of looking at, at the Treasury? Uh, and kind of what are the two sides of the argument of looking them as Scrooge? It is somewhat inevitable because if you look at the government departments in the UK, all of them bar the Treasury are what you call spending departments. The Ministry of Defence spends on defence, the Foreign Office spends on diplomats, Department of Health, that's obvious. And they all really are about how to spend money consistent with the government's political strategy. And they're not terribly sure. interested in how you raise it. The Treasury uniquely has to say, OK, great idea to spend this extra £5 billion, but where's it coming from exactly? And the Treasury always has to think about both sides and realises the difficulty of raising taxes and the negative consequences of doing that. So the Treasury is inevitably cast as the one department that has sometimes to say no. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what really gives it that reputation as the kind of Scrooge, the, the department that likes to say no. Some people in the Treasury take that perhaps too far. And indeed, arguably, and I say this in the book, Osborne, uh, George Osborne, when he was Chancellor, did take austerity a bit too far at the time. Uh, but they can never be, it can never be an open checkbook. Uh, the Treasury will always have to establish some limits to government spending. And that inevitably then means it's cast uh, in the Scrooge role to some degree. You start out your, your book by building out three primary time periods um, for framework. You point out 1997 to 2010, which would follow um, the Labour government, uh, 2010 to 2016, and then from Brexit on, uh, it, it, did you build out those time periods just kind of out of the political regimes or was there more beyond the politics? Well, I think really the time period from the first time period goes from 97 through to the financial crisis of uh, 2008, because actually there's quite a lot of continuity between the policies that Alistair Darling was pursuing to try to deal with the financial crisis and then what Osborne did. So I would really characterize the period slightly differently. I would say it's 97, 2008, uh, when you know, the balloon went up and the financial crisis changed everything. And then from 98, uh, from 2008 through to the Brexit referendum. Um, and that also changed a lot of things, maybe not everything, but it changed a lot of things. And then we've been since then in a period of some political turmoil, which continues, and also having to deal with an economy uh, which has removed itself from the big free trading area, which has now got less trade intensity and is operating in really quite a different way since, uh, since the referendum result. In 1997 to the financial crisis, um, you talk a lot about the scorecard of that labor era. Um, you point out that the first decade of that period was strong, 
but productivity was so weak. How do you explain this weakness in productivity? Because this becomes kind of a, a central point for parts of the economic discussion in your book, where you're talking a lot about the productivity relative to Germany or productivity relative to Italy, um, Germany being outstanding and Italy being very weak. Um, how do you look at the weakness during that period? And w- what do you kind of think the, the reasons for that are? There seem to be two underlying problems in the UK, which are sometimes concealed by uh, growth um, which uh, is reasonably healthy. So the period from 97 to 2008 was not too bad. We didn't catch up the productivity deficits that we have with France and Germany, but we were on the whole tracking along roughly with our European competitors. The underlying problem in the UK is low investment. We have a lower ratio of business investment to the economy than most of our competitors in the rest of Europe. I mean, about the same as Italy, but in fact, even slightly below Italy. And Italy has been the sick man of the continental Europe for a long time. And the second thing is that we do have lower skill levels, uh, particularly in technical areas. Uh, These are harder to to measure than business investment. uh, But mostly, if you look at engineers uh, and you know skilled technicians of one sort or another, you find that we are weaker than Germany and indeed weaker than France. But the biggest single factor is lower business investment. Well, the the period that period ends with business, household, and financial debt at four hundred twenty percent of GDP, the most of of developed countries. Um, in your book, that number still kind of haunting the UK economy even today. I think it means that the scope for increasing debt is less than it might be in some other places. You've got to be careful about your comparisons because obviously Italy's in an even worse position than than we are. But I think we have less headroom than France, Germany or the United States because the economy has been operating with a very high level of aggregate debt. And it's uh, interesting, and um, I think it's right for you to point out that those numbers are are public debt and private debt taken together. And people often focus just on public debt, but it's important to focus on private debt as well. Uh, So, yes, I think that it isn't in itself a crisis. And, of course, the implications have been somewhat concealed Mm -hmm. by the fact that interest rates have been so low. You know, globally, we've had a deficit of investment over savings. So interest rates have been uh, very low for a long time. And therefore, the implications of that high debt burden are much less than they are if there's a positive real interest rate. Because if there's a negative real interest rate, which is essentially what we've had for Mm -hmm. quite some time, you know, that's not a problem that you have a high outstanding debt. Whereas if interest rates were to become positive, real interest rates were to become positive, it would be a serious issue. Now, actually, of course, at the moment, the people who have borrowed money are doing okay, because interest rates are uh, still much lower than the inflation rate. So the total real value of the government's debt stock uh, is declining. Now, in the long run, that's a bit tricky because investors on the whole don't like that. And therefore, the chances that they will be prepared to refund your debt at the same interest rate are much lower. And indeed, we now can see long-term rates rising on a rising trend for a little a little while. 
But in fact, in some ways, we've been a little bit lucky by inflation because the high outstanding stock of debt is being devalued at the moment in real terms quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. You make me want to start a conspiracy theory club here. Um, uh, let's see. So, uh, and we'll come back to that because I think it's a wonderful point you just made. Um, you point out some interesting stats around, you know, the Brexit transition early in your writing. Um, you mentioned that Brexit caused a 40% drop in exports to the EU in the first two months, and then it stabilized. Um, as we all know, there were some very dour predictions out there around Brexit for what could happen. Why did things settle so quickly in your estimation? Was it, was it just businesses adapting to a new network structure very quickly for profit reasons? I think this uh, issue of the economics of, of Brexit is, does require a little bit of disen, disentanglement. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there were several forecasts done, including by the Treasury, in the early stages of the referendum campaign, which effectively centred on the idea that there would be about a 4% GDP adverse impact from Brexit. Quite a lot of different forecasters came to that conclusion. Um, and then subsequently, a very political forecast, and I explained the detail of this, uh, was produced by George Osborne around the time mm -hmm. of the referendum itself, which is what is often dubbed Project Fear. And that, uh, I think, is actually in some ways quite a fair description of that second forecast, where he said, well, if we leave, you know, we're going to have to have an immediate emergency budget and taxes will have to rise, etc., etc." And that really was an unsupportable proposition and was just never likely to happen. And that was politics, pure politics. But the earlier Treasury forecast in the early part of 2016 looks to be pretty good. And the Office of Budget Responsibility now, the official government forecasting entity, is still saying that we are getting a 4% hit to GDP over a period of time. And what's what essentially we are seeing that. The UK economy is growing less rapidly than others and there is a Brexit impact. The Brexit impact in part goes through lower competition because we have left a free trade zone and lower mm -hmm. trade intensity. And the more striking figures recently have been that the a proportion of trade within the UK economy has fallen at a time when the proportion of trade in the continental European economies has been rising. That's been a very striking factor. Now, as for whether that's exports or imports, in some ways it doesn't matter so much. In fact, what we've seen is British exports have held up reasonably. It's imports from the European Union that have fallen sharply. But that is also damaging from an economic point of view because we are substituting European imports for less effective, less efficient uh, ones that we are creating domestically. Supply chains have been uh, disrupted. So there are a variety of channels through which Brexit is affecting GDP. But the best estimate that I can see uh, is that it will make us about 4% poorer over the period which, is, which, which we're living through, which is pretty serious. You know, governments will do a lot for 4% of GDP. Now, it sure. isn't the end of the world. Obviously, it's not 40%, but yeah. it is quite significant. There was also, you mentioned in, in that part of, the, of your writing that the IFS ran their doppelganger economy 
Um, and, and I think they came up with something around six, which was an interesting analysis to think about. Um, so let's, let's, let's pivot over to, um, to COVID and beyond. Um, and I, I was trying to think about, you know, if I had to kind of synthesize, and this was me guessing as the outsider, Howard, what, what are Howard's kind of three big points or bullets for the UK economy? And what I took out of your writing was, um, tax structure, right? Kind of the taxes overall, Productivity, the, you know what we talked about in terms of uh, productivity of labor, and then would the third be income inequality, or what? What would be your three that you think are very important issues that that need to be tackled in the UK economy? Well, on the first point, um, I think there is a, a significant issue, and and Sunak uh, was talking about this and has commissioned a review. I don't know what's happened to it now, but that. This issue of business investment, it does appear that our tax structure is not encouraging business uh, investment. Now, there probably are other reasons why businesses are not investing as much in the UK, but it would appear that our tax structure is not as biased towards investment as sure. the tax structures elsewhere in Europe. So that is something on which uh, to work. Uh, I personally think that the second is really uh, the skills mix. Um, and that uh, we've had a curious, if you like, balance of investment. You know, we tend to do very well at the top end universities. You know, our top sure. universities are high in the, in the league tables. But further education colleges and these uh, technical skills, we score very poorly. And we seem to have biased our education investment in favour of higher education uh, at the, and the best universities and against uh, the basic sort of further education skills. And that, I think, is a, a bias that needs to be corrected. The third point, income inequality. Well, you know, hands up who's in favour of income inequality? Nobody. Uh, but um, it's tricky to work on directly, I think, uh, unless you are prepared to have a very strongly redistributive uh, tax system. And, you know, bluntly, there is no political majority for that at the moment in the country. So I think that the inequality I would see more as a kind of consequence of the shape of the economy, mm. you know, where we have a very competitive global services sector based in London, where those people, you know, whether it's finance people or lawyers uh, or creative people, are tending to be paid a sort of global wage, if you like. You know, our lawyers are competing with American lawyers. Sure. Our television producers and people are competing with US television producers. So their wages tend to go up to some sort of global clearing price in that industry because the mm -hmm. service sector is very easy to move across borders, as you know, in finance. Um, and that tends to drive up those relative wages in London, leaving the rest of the economy, which is much more domestically focused, uh, behind. So that's, I think, the biggest single reason for growth in income inequality. Now, do you deal with that just by taxing these people more at the top end? I, I'm not sure that's going to do the trick, actually, uh, and indeed could have even counterintuitive consequences um, because you could drive some of those people offshore, and you don't want that. Uh, either. So I don't think income inequality is something that you could kind of directly target. I think it's a consequence of the structure of your economy. And therefore, it's more about business investment and skills mix that will alter income inequality than, you know, attacking it directly. 
to your point, you know, wealth's ability to move offshore in a UK citizenship and tax structure is just so easy because, you know, you don't pay taxes as an expat. So I agree with you that it could, it could drive out, uh, you know, uh, it could drive out the money pretty quickly. So let's, so this might be my favorite part of your whole book. I had never heard of the Ken and Eddie show before. Okay. And, and, and I just want you to know, just bringing this into my lexicon and thinking, because I think it's very appropriate for thinking about today. And I think you make some wonderful points, but so just to kind of how, how, how did it take so long for the UK to get to a quote unquote independent central bank you know, by the, you know, it did it in 97, as we all know, but why did it take so long? Yeah, that's a very good question. And um, the, I mean, one answer, but it doesn't, it's not a complete one, is that actually the Treasury from really, I would say, from the 1970s, the late 70s onwards, the Treasury was intellectually persuaded that an independent central bank made sense. Because they had observed the process of interest rate setting and had observed that it was very strongly politically motivated and that there was no chance of getting a Chancellor of the Exchequer to increase interest rates within nine months of an election, uh, even if it was absolutely clear that interest rates needed to rise. So the Treasury was intellectually persuaded of it, but unfortunately, successive prime ministers um, were not. Um, and I guess when the and the US, of course, uh, hadn't an independent central bank really since the Treasury Accord of 1951, although, of course, there were famous episodes where presidents uh, leaned on the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. So, you know, let's not be let's not be too pure about the way this sure. worked in the United States. There's no virtue. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. The Germans had had one. But it, curiously, because we imposed it on them, you know, we and the Americans and the French imposed uh, sort of weak political institutions on Germany for obvious reasons after the war. One of the dimensions of that was to have a central bank that was independent, which couldn't be, couldn't be kind of brigaded by the government uh, in support of an aggressive military policy, which was what happened to the Reichsbank in the 1930s. So we imposed it on them. But then gradually, because of the experience of the inflationary bursts of the 1970s, you know, the first oil shock and the second oil shock, and the realisation that some very tough decisions had to be made. And of course, Paul Volcker's experience, and he, he did it, squeezed inflation out of the US system in a way that we found much harder to do, and the French and the Italians also found hard. Uh, and people looked at Germany and said, well, hang on, how is it that the Germans have been able to avoid these nasty uh, oil sh uh, price shocks as a result of the OPEC? Uh, price setting cabal, then, you know, it, the answer was pretty obvious that that was an independent central bank. And at that point, you found that treasuries, and this is true in France and true in the UK, agreed that actually it would make a lot more sense to have independent central banks. And then that linked in Europe to the European Economic and Monetary Union, where having an independent central bank was a precondition of getting into that. And of course, everybody else apart from us wanted to get into it. And so we were left as a bit of an outlier. Uh, and the Treasury, uh, Geoffrey Howe and then Nigel Lawson, both argued that we should go for an independent central bank. But Mrs. Thatcher was an absolute holdout. And she mm -hmm. said, this is not correct, that it's got to be politically, you know, got to have political accountability for interest rates. This is not something 
that we hand over to a bunch of bankers at the other end of town. You know, politicians must be accountable for the price of money. And she took an absolutely principled stand uh, on it. Not actually a kind of practical, well, we can still do it better, as it were, but she just said it was wrong in principle. And I'm afraid Mrs. Thatcher, uh, as you will have heard, uh, was a rather uh, tough person to argue down. Uh, you know, many, many grown men have uh, quailed at that prospect. Um, and so she held up the progress towards an independent central bank single-handedly for more than a decade. And then, as you know from today, uh, the, the sort of shadow of Mrs. Thatcher on British politics is very long. Um, and so through the, through the 90s under uh, John Major initially, you know, he wasn't able to get political consensus around doing something that was so obviously hostile to what Mrs. Thatcher believed. So they had to try to find a sort of halfway house. And that was the Ken and Eddie show, you know, which attempted to create an element of independent and published advice by the Bank of England, but without contravening the Thatcherite dogma that this was something that politicians had to be responsible for and accountable for. So that's why it took us such a long time. And we got there in this crabwise uh, method of, of going sort of halfway towards it. And Blair and Brown, to their credit, said, you know what, if we just do this straight away on day one of our parliament, of our uh, time in government, people will go, <gasps> and then they'll forget about it. <laughs> and that's what they did. They knew that if they turned it into a debate, that, you know, people would go argue up and hill and down dale. And so they just announced it, you know, they won the election on the Thursday, and on the Friday, they summoned in the governor and said, this is what we're going to do. And they announced it on the Monday. Oh, to follow on, you know, to your point about the Ken and Eddie show, um, I just, I have this picture, Howard. I just, I think it's so funny to kind of think about. So, you know, Ken, Ken Clark and Eddie George sit down to your point to announce what's going to go on for that month in interest rates. And, you know, before Eddie George, the governor of the Bank of England can say anything, Ken Clark, the chancellor says, well, there's not going to be any rate rises this month. Okay. And just the ir irony of having treasury comment on Bank of England policy um, it, it, it's kind of laughable today. And yet in your book, I actually think you kind of make the case that we're going back to the Ken and Eddie show at some point. Well, uh, it's possible. I, I hope not. Um, but it's fair to say that quantitative easing uh, has muddied the water somewhat. Because, you know, if you ask 10 economists, whether you, they think that quantitative easing is monetary policy or fiscal policy, you probably get five to say monetary and five to say fiscal because yeah. it looks a little bit that way. And therefore, there has been more interaction between the Treasury and the central bank uh, as a result of quantitative easing. In, in the UK, I think correctly, in my view, the Treasury has determined the volume of QE uh, and has been prepared to stand up in Parliament and say, we told the bank that they can spend up to X billion pounds on buying uh, gilt-edged stock. So that has re required a bit more interaction between the monetary and the fiscal authorities. And at the moment, of course, there are people near to uh, the new prime minister who think that that should go a bit further 
uh, and that there should be much more coordination of monetary and fiscal policy. Now, you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, there is a, some kind of theoretical argument for that. On the other hand, you can see it as the thin end of a wedge, which might lead us to politically determined interest rates, which I don't think anybody really wants to go back to. Sure. So I think it's, it's a careful balance that's going to have to be struck. You know, depending on which question I, you ask, do you think that there should be some coordination of monetary and fiscal policy, particularly in a world of quantitative easing and quantitative tightening? I think most people say, yeah. Do you yeah. think that the Treasury uh, should be able to tell, instruct the Bank of England on interest rates? Answer, no. So there's some territory between those two, <laughs> which I think is where we're going to end up. Point out really good distinctions for structuring or thinking about the structure of the Bank of England and the Treasury versus, say, the Federal Reserve of the United States. Um, you, you know, you point out that the Bank of England's is a hierarchical uh, uh, setup where their primary target is inflation, okay, and everything else falls below that primary target. Versus the Federal Reserve of the United States, as you write in your book, is price stability and, and full employment, and. So here's my question, and, we're, and we'll come back to this so we don't have to fully answer this uh, on this question, but it, it, it could, could this cause some trouble for the Bank of England when you think about other, other government policies like climate change, where it is a government policy, it's kind of a well-established government policy, but where does that fall in the hierarchy below price stability? Does that make sense? Yeah. This is a, a very interesting question, but where I think that the UK is actually in a slightly better place than mm. either the European Central Bank or than the Fed, because the issue there, uh, and this has come up very much in the Fed, you know, where Biden wanted to appoint somebody to the Federal Reserve Board who had said some rather aggressive things about the need for action on climate change, uh, sure. you know, which uh, wasn't uh, where the Congress, uh, congressional committees were. Uh, and had to be withdrawn. Um, whereas, and, and the ECB is often criticised for exceeding its brief because, you know, where does this climate change mandate come from? Uh, nobody's told them to do that. In the UK, the Chancellor did write last year to the Central Bank and say to the Governor, you know, you should be taking account of the impact of climate change um, and of the impact of your policies um, on climate change. And that gives the Bank of England some cover uh, and some legitimacy, in my view, to do things like force the banks to stress test their portfolios and say, well, where would you lose money uh, if, if the temperature rose? And should you be thinking about um, the interest rates you charge on people where their loans might be more risky because of their vulnerability to climate change, etc.? And also that the bank can legitimately say, well, when we buy bonds, um, we are going to buy from, uh, you know, issue, we're going to buy green bonds, or we're going to bias towards green bonds in order to encourage uh, companies to uh, adjust to climate change. And the Bank of England, I think, has got now a legitimate mandate to do that. Now, how you balance those things at any particular time is, of course, a tricky question. But it's yeah. perfectly legitimate for the Bank of England to to do that, whereas the other big central banks haven't been have got no political cover for that, uh, and sure. I think that's a problem. Because, as you point out, that the inflation mandate is obviously set by Treasury, which is plus or minus two percent um, is their primary target. Versus in the United States, 
Um, you know, we, we, it, it's, to, uh, I think it's, you say it's 2% or less, um, and, and, and versus the ECB has a different, you know, style of mandate. And then the other thing I think you do a really good job explaining is the, why the outsiders are there on the open market committee. Um, and I think it's a great piece in your book to help understand it, They were trying to think about incentive structures when they built this and therefore group think danger. Um, so let's, I'm going to kind of pivot this a little bit because I think, I, 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 we could go on for days on this hour, just so you know, because I love this discussion, but I, I want to hit some interesting things. Um, Alistar uh, Darling uh, creates in January of 09, the asset purchase facility, um, you know, to purchase bonds, obviously. As you wrote, I'll quote your book, quote, the bank became the purchaser of first resort rather than the lender of last resort, end quote. I highlighted this as it seems you have, a, did I kind of sense a mistrust of, of that kind of mechanism just in your, I'll call it your professional life or maybe your personal thinking? Yes, I, I do rather. And um, uh, I mean, this may be a, a somewhat purist view, which possibly would break down in a financial crisis of the scale that we had in 2008. But the Treasury was then, if you like, making essentially credit judgments by saying, well, we're just going to buy this stuff, you know, no matter sure. what uh, the quality is. And I don't think that's an ideal thing for treasuries to get involved in. And indeed, it can mean that you preserve zombie companies in existence because they can still borrow because the treasury is prepared to back the lending that the banks do to them. So let the banks then start to say, well, why should we make a credit judgment? Because, you know, we're backed by the government anyway, whether this goes bankrupt or not. And of course, we did this something similar under COVID, you know, that the Treasury backed, bounced back loans um, and said they were government guaranteed. And undoubtedly, the banks did lend to people to whom they would not otherwise have lent and kept businesses sure. in being. Now, you know, in COVID, the unusual segments of COVID, where the government was kind of requiring people to stop trading, if you like, uh, then perhaps it was justified then to sort of freeze them, if you like, uh, until normal conditions recovered. But in general, I think that kind of intervention should be avoided, if at all possible. In your book, you write that Andy Haldane is making the case that the central banks won't respond because really the governments won't allow it at some point. Um, and, and you can kind of see the incentive structures that Haldane is pointing to where the government, if they can't afford the debt, they're just going to turn and say, don't raise rates because it's not in our best interest. And, and I, I, reading Hal Dane's uh, you know, uh, comments in your book made me think, back to my earlier point, you know, if Hal Dane's right, we are going back to the Ken and Eddie show. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the argument that was taking place at the time I, I finalized uh, the book, which was uh, right at the end of last year, was, well, is this going to end in inflation or is it not, given sure. this massive increase in debt? And there were two views. Uh, one, people like Charles Goodhart and then Andy Haldane himself, who said, do you know what? It is going to end in inflation because um, it's going to be very, very difficult for the central banks to take the interest rate actions that they need to do in order to offset these potential inflationary pressures. And then there were other people, notably people on the Monetary Policy Committee, uh, who said, no, we will ensure that we will take action when it's necessary uh, in order to keep us at the target. And I think 
you know, when I was writing, it, the jury was out, but I think you could see that my view was more towards the Goodhart and the Haldane view, that sure. if it came to it, it was going to be hard to do. Um, I think not because the government directly marked the card of the Bank of England and told them not to, but because they could see that you know, raising rates at a time when we still had COVID restrictions, there's a risk they get run out of town. Um, you know, that they're not immune to the general political mood, even if that's sure. not expressed in the form of a, of a letter from the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And it's pretty clear in retrospect that the Bank of England and the Fed and the ECB mm. all waited a bit too long. You know, we can all see that now, uh, that they were sort of hoping that these pressures were temporary. Remember, the Fed deemed it to be transitory inflation. And then in November, they had to retire the word. Uh, <laughs> Jay Powell said, I thought that was sort of commendably honest uh, approach. Um, and, you know, they all reacted in the same way, i.e. too late. Uh, and I don't think that they were politically instructed to do that. I think they just sensed the public mood and thought, well, you know, if we do this too soon, we're going to be absolutely murdered. Now, of course, they're now growing the opposite yeah. risk. Yeah, they're getting murdered for not doing anything. <laughs> murdered for not doing it. But, you know, that's uh, that's show business. So I'm going to, so, and that's, I'd love that discussion. And we'll, I think we tip back at that. We'll tip back at that a little bit later here, but um, so Gordon Brown comes in with Tony Blair in 1997. Um, you talk about this in your, in, in part of your book called Brown one. Um, you say he was married to a girl named Prudence. Um, explain this to our listeners. <laughs> There's a slight in joke there because um, my wife is actually called Prudence. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, uh, this was this became. I mean, for, for for British readers who've been around for a long time, will recall that uh, actually when I was made chairman of the FSA, Gordon Brown himself did make a joke at some point, saying, "You know, I know he'll do a good job here because he's married to Prudence," which of course you know, could be seen in both directions. So I was kind of retailing that uh, that joke, but it often was referred to, uh, and there is a book, actually a rather good book, written by a guy called Bill Keegan, who still writes for The Observer, who wrote a book called The Prudence of Mr. Gordon Brown. And this was about why Gordon Brown, in the first term of his chancellorship, chose to follow the spending policies set out by the previous Conservative government. And the point of that was that the Labour Party had observed, and Blair said this himself, that all previous Labour governments had foundered in a financial crisis. And that's broadly speaking true, actually. And therefore, and he was absolutely determined that having won a majority, he was going to keep it. And furthermore, he was certainly not going to founder in a financial crisis. Now, of course, ironically, they did in the end, mm -hmm. but it wasn't their financial crisis. <laughs> sure. You know, so I don't think they could be blamed. But you know, previous Labour governments had all got into trouble by spending too much money. And then in the end, the bond markets bit them uh, back and interest rates had to rise and etc. Uh, and he wanted to avoid that. And the way they did that was because in the first four years, he said, we are going to follow the overall spending policies set out by the previous Conservative government. So if they turn out to be wrong, well, don't blame us because we're just doing what they would have done. And then mm -hmm. gradually, Brown shifted away from that in 
Brown too, if you like, mm-hmm. where yeah. when they'd won the second election by even more in 2001, Brown was able then to pursue some policies that he'd always wanted to pursue, particularly targeted at re- uh, reducing child poverty, which he had some quite considerable success in doing. So that was how that was why Brown one and Brown two were seen at the at the time. Oh, in that section of Brown two, he called this the catch up period. Is how Brown referred to it. And the only thing I was asking myself, Howard, that maybe you can answer for me is catch-up to what? (laughs) Well, there were certain quite specific catch-ups in that, for example, the government committed itself to increasing health expenditure as a percentage Mm -hmm. of GDP to the European Union average. Okay. And that was very straightforward. And, uh, you know, it was the case that we were spending less on health uh, as a percentage of GDP than uh, comparable countries of France, Germany and Italy. And he similarly committed to uh, increasing expenditure on education, um, which, uh, you know, where, again, we were spending uh, less as a proportion of GDP than our European counterparts. So there were some quite clear milestones, if you like, um, on on catching, catching up. Uh, and it was those that, you know, created the framework for the policy. Irvin King, in this portion of your book, um, you refer to him and what he called the nice period. Uh, Can you explain what he meant by nice and and what did this mean? Yes, Mervyn pointed out, he had a good turn of phrase, Mervyn still does, uh, that there was a long period from really 97 right through to the financial crisis, which was non-inflationary and consistently expansionary, and that he produced the acronym NICE. Uh, and that's roughly roughly true. Uh, inflation was low; it averaged around our two percent target, and the economy grew at you know on average about about two percent, maybe slightly below. But that was pretty good. And then he contrasted that uh, with a vile period, uh, where which was uh, volatile inflation and less expansion. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where we've been. Since uh, since the financial crisis, we know we had initially a burst of inflation in 2010. It then eased off, uh, but now, of course, we're back there. But we've certainly had less expansion. Uh, we've certainly had an average growth rate considerably below the period before 2008. So that was Mervyn's characterization of these two periods, which is pretty accurate, I think. Darling comes to, in, uh, to the chancellor role in 07 with the help of the Liberal Democrats who wanted to get rid of deficits. Um, conservatives were even more hawkish on cutting. Um, the sentiment for spending was gone in UK politics by then. Um, then this is followed with the austerity chancellor, as you point out, George Osborne. Um, explain it from your writing what Osborne enacted in spending at that time. Yeah, sorry, the, the, uh, there's just one thing in, in, your, in your introduction, which I, uh, is that Darling was not there with the Liberal Democrats. I mean, the Liberal Democrats came in in 2010, uh, as part of a coalition with the Conservatives. I mean, Darling still had this, the Labour majority uh, that they won in 2005, uh, which was quite a sizable majority, not as big as the 2001 majority, but it was a perfectly perfectly sustainable uh, majority. And Brown uh, became, became Prime Minister in 2010 when Blair quit. Darling came in then. So he had a comfortable majority, wasn't doing anything as a result of uh, the Liberal Democrats. Mm -hmm. But slightly to everybody's surprise, uh, that in 2010, when the Tories were expected to win, uh, because 
difficult to win an election after the scale of that financial crisis, frankly. Sure. Um, uh, whoever you were, you know, you were just tainted by it. Uh, but uh, the Tories didn't actually win an overall election because the Liberal Democrats got about 50 seats. So they, the Liberal Democrats then had to decide whether they were going to keep the Labour government in power or do a coalition with the Tories. They made the second fateful choice, as far as they're concerned, and they've never really recovered from it, sure. and attached themselves to the Conservative government. And Osborne took the view uh, that the... Conservatives should impose a significant fiscal squeeze. Um, and he saw that, I think, as something which he would do for a few years and then they would be in a position to win an election uh, after it because they would be able to take the squeeze off, if you like, in the run-up to the following election, which, of course, mm -hmm. he did, and indeed he won, um, though with some rather peculiar consequences from him for him personally. But he did impose a quite severe fiscal squeeze from 2010 onwards. Some of the obvious features of that were, you know, the large increase in student fees in order to reduce government expenditure on higher education, which was very damaging politically for the Liberal Democrats because they'd said they'd never do it, but they did. Then also he made significant reductions in expenditure on local government. And we are still suffering from that, I think. You know, local government was enfeebled under the uh, Osborne uh, regime. Other areas, you know, there, were, there wasn't a massive squeeze. I mean, you know, there's never any political support for squeezing the NHS in this country. Social care uh, did poorly, and defence. Uh, you know, we continued to reduce our defence expenditures a percent of GDP. That, of course, is now going to have to turn around. But we're not the only country who did that in the... Sure. You know, we were still we were still spending the the peace dividend, if you like, at that point. So those were the key elements that got, that uh, Osborne cut back. He then pulled back a bit and, and and spent a bit more money in the run up to 2015 election, and then the Tories won an overall majority. But little good it did them because they were then obliged to have the uh, referendum on Brexit, from which the Liberals had saved them because they were committed to it in order to deal with the sort of anti-Europeans in the party. Cameron had said, yes, I'll have a referendum on Brexit. But then the Liberals wouldn't approve it. So he was saved from his own folly uh, for five years. And then sure. not until he actually won an overall majority did, of course, then the Europhobes or Eurosceptics in the party say, well, just a minute, you promised us this referendum and now you've not got an excuse not to have it. First devil is the devil that you don't know, to your point. Um, so you, you, you note that the UK economy didn't slip into recession during the Eurozone crisis, but there was also no boom recovering from the financial crisis either. What, was this a structural problem in the economy or was this George Osborne's man-made problem? That's a, a matter still of lively debate. I think where I come out is that Osborne did make it a bit worse. Mm -hmm. And indeed, he himself said to me, in the course of uh, interviews for this book, that he thinks uh, he took it too far. Uh, and I think if he had his time again, he would not have been as, uh, as strict. But whether that a bit more public spending would have solved the underinvestment and low productivity problem, I'm not sure is quite so clear. So we probably sure. would have had slightly higher growth, but it would have been a slightly higher growth of the public sector probably. And not 
not so much of productive uh, capacity in the private sector. So I don't think you can ascribe our poor growth performance exclusively to Osborne's fiscal policies. In, in that portion of the book, you talk about 30% of the debt of the UK was held by foreign investors at the time. Uh, Mark Carney called it the kindness of strangers. That was then. Now, how do you look at the kindness of strangers today, you know, as we see, to your point, inflation and rising rates versus that era where it was this super tame inflationary uh, environment uh, where investors could provide capital practically anywhere? Yeah, well, uh, I think the, the Carney quote uh, is actually even more relevant today than it was mm -hmm. then. Um, and we're starting just to see some signs that these um, strangers may not be quite so kindly disposed to us. Now, <laughs> it's a bit early to say quite how it will work, because, but I mean, you know, guilt, edge, uh, guilt rates have edged up above 3%. Uh, so that's quite a bit higher than elsewhere in the Eurozone. Um, and the pound uh, has been falling fairly uh, sharply and now looks to be falling a bit more than the euro. So it, the currency story in the last year, as you well know, has been a story of dollar strength rather than of sterling weakness in sure. that we've tracked, we've tracked the euro down against the dollar. But there have been signs just in the last couple of weeks that, the, that sterling is going down further than the euro. So I think we're at a rather interesting and delicate moment um, where the markets will have to decide if what this government wants to do is, is a sustainable policy um, or not. And we'll probably be better able to talk about that next week than we are this week because we're still sure. not, we still don't know quite what they're going to do. Your point on, on dollar strength, I think more of it being about dollar strength where if you look back, you go back to say like, you know, the early 2000s, the same thing happened where it was a massive dollar squeeze um, right before the dollar was going to go into the doldrums for 10 years. So, um, and, and I don't, I'll, I'll jump uh, because I want to hear your answer to my next question. Um, so Sunex time was obviously short lived, um, but for a conservative to look at higher corporate taxes is quite a thing to behold. Um, what, was he breaking the sacraments? <laughs> well, um, in one sense, yes, you can say it looked that way. But on the other hand, as I said uh, a few minutes ago, he also um, planned to look at the whole balance between corporate tax rates mm -hmm. and capital allowances. And uh, because it would appear that if you compare our overall system of corporate taxation with Germany and France, that it looks as though overall our incidence of corporate taxation has been higher, even with Osborne's low rates, than in Germany and France, because they get more capital allowances for uh, investment, including in research and development, not just in bricks and mortar. Sure. And so I think Osborne's, uh, sorry, Sunak's intent was really a rebalancing of the corporate taxation system with an increase in the sort of headline rate, if you like, uh, paid by companies like NatWest, um, but uh, <laughs> or a, a significant reduction um, in the effective tax rate on people, you know, heavily investing in innovation, startups, etc. I think that was really his his overall intention. Uh, he, I mean, 
it may be slightly odd that he started where he did. But those at higher corporate tax rates have not come in, of course, yet. You know, sure. uh, and now they may be rescinded anyway. So he was saying, and partly I think to sort of calm the markets, was to say, look, we know we've spent a huge amount of money on COVID support, but don't worry, we are going to get it back. You know, we are going to increase taxes. And there, here's a sort of on account uh, increase that we could say we've, you know, we, we're committed to. Uh, and he was doing that in order to sort of calm the financial markets and overseas investors. Um, whether that was necessary, I don't know. It's hard to judge, really. Sure. A tax rise that you announced but you've never implemented, was that useful to you? I don't know. Some very interesting points on tax policy. And I think it's, you know, for an American to think about the tax policy of the UK is just a really interesting chapter out of your book. Um, you point, you, you write about Adam Smith, what he says about taxes. They should be efficient, certain, transparent, and fair. Um, this would be ideal, obviously. But at the same time, you do a good job of explaining the shortcomings to get there because you have to end up there. Um, to quote out of your book, uh, quote, according to McPherson, obviously Nick McPherson, politics have become far more managerial than ideological. The conventional wisdom is we don't want to upset small interest groups, end quote. Can you explain the chasm between, you know, your point on Adam Smith and then McPherson's point on, on you know, managerial? Yeah. Well, probably the wisest, um, although slightly depressing observation on this is from uh, uh, Alistair Darling, you know, that uh, any ta- change in the tax structure generates winners and losers and the winners never thank you and the losers uh, pursue you for the rest of time and um, <laughs> that the only time you can make significant uh, tax reform is when you've got a bit of a surplus uh, sure. where you can afford to spend a bit of money to sort of buy off the losers at least in the short run uh, in, in order to create a more rational structure for the long run and I think the problem and why that chapter I found as the most depressing to write was mm-hmm. that, you know, we haven't for a long, long time, really now since, well, certainly since 2007, uh, we're now 15 years, we haven't been in a position where governments have felt able to, as it were, spend money to create a more rational tax structure mm-hmm. um, because they've always been scraping around to try to balance the books, whether as a result of the financial crisis uh, or then the Brexit referendum crisis or the COVID crisis, you know, there's always been a a problem there. So almost nothing has been done to make our tax system um, more more rational. Uh, And that's a depressing conclusion. Point you made in that uh, that, uh, chapter of the book that really got to not only my mind, but also my wallet, um, was you talked about the historical, uh, you, you talked about the historical um, stamp duty taxes uh, on homes, obviously, and and we've owned three UK home builders for about seven years, and so it was like you know it was I could totally understand that. It, it, so you mentioned there's about 19 different categories under the stamp duty to decide where you fall in that tax structure. Is that correct? Yes, I mean this is a sad uh, a sad story really, and, and and has a long a long history unfortunately. But the, the the quick version is that we used tax property based on something called the rates, you know, which was on the rateable value, you know, effectively the rentable value of your property, and that sure. was a local taxation, and therefore it was roughly progressive, you know, more uh, it, 
where, where higher value properties were taxed more. Sure. And then Mrs. Thatcher introduced something called the community charge, the poll tax effectively, to fund local authorities, removed the rates completely, so there was sort of no property taxation, and it was all per head. That failed within about 18 months because it was simply intolerable. The implications for inequality and unfairness were such that it was politically intolerable. And so the government had to get rid of it and replaced it with something called council taxation. But because council taxation was a kind of bastard son of the rates and the community charge, it was effectively capped. And so, you know, the bans are such that the top band is not very high. Uh, I can't precise number, but I mean, you know, one, in London, once you get to a million, that's it. You never pay any more, okay? And as you know, plenty of tax properties in London are worth a little bit more than a million. At least. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it, it, it's a weird property tax structure, which is capped. And so in order to compensate for that, I mean, you could do two things. One, you could reform the whole thing, but the government has never been, the Tories have never been prepared to, to address that problem. Sure. Uh, because that's their, you know, homeowners are their voting base. Yeah. Or you could do something to regenerate more taxes out of property and do it on the transactions. Now, in my view, that's just really bad way of doing it. You know, you're taxing movement in the property market, but yeah. you're not taxing the people who sit there. So someone like me, who's been actually in the same house now for almost 30 years, you know, we moved a lot in our 20s and 30s and then at the age of 40, we said, this is a place we like and we're going to stay here. And we've been here for 30 years. We've so, clearly underpaid property tax. You know, we've paid nothing, nothing. Whereas younger people moving two or three times as they get married and then they have a couple of children and then they have four children and then they move, you know, they've been paying through the nose because they've been paying stamp duty going higher and higher and higher. So this is a very, very, very odd way of taxing property. And you certainly wouldn't start from here. Uh, but this is a real, it's interesting that I think very few people, and maybe this is one of the few benefits of going old, very few people have got the sort of perspective to recall why it is we're in this peculiar position. Many people complain about the high rates of stamp duty, but that's why we're there. It's the community charge, it's the poll tax, which was implemented in 1988-9, and that is the key influence on our structural property taxation. The other stamp duty that I think of as obviously an international investor into UK markets is, you know, if I buy a stock in in, in London, I got to pay the stamp duty on the purchase, 50 basis points. First, I buy it in New York um, for a US listed business that's not in London. I don't pay any stamp duty. So to your point, in, you know, some of these things in a global structure also can become antiquated, um, you know, much like you, you point out the structure of the stamp duty on houses just doesn't make sense for what's most economic. So let me let me um, pivot to your Scottish referendum chapter. And um, I think you did a wonderful job in this chapter of explaining how the Treasury was there to provide outstanding data and inform, but not directly influence, if that makes sense. Um, so can you teach our listeners about the tightrope of what they did at that point? Well, the key point in the Scottish referendum, in the end, turned out to be the problem of the currency mm -hmm. because the Scots were always um, a little bit unclear about just exactly what their currency would be. There'd be a simple answer 
first an independent Scotland in Europe. And of course, the Scottish narrative has always been Scotland, you know, wants to stay closely linked to Europe. And there's a majority in Scotland for doing that. But the simple answer, therefore, would be to say, well, we're going to leave the UK and we'll join the Eurozone. So our currency will be the euro, like in Ireland. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you know, the, the euro is not very popular in this country for a variety of reasons. And so the Scottish nationalists have concluded that to say that would frighten the horses, you know, that people would not vote for independence if they thought they were going to get the euro. So they wanted to say, well, we'll be independent and we'll have a completely independent fiscal policy, but we'll still use the pound. The eurozone crisis uh, of 2010-11 showed the hazards of that, of having countries like Greece, which were running an imprudent fiscal policy and somehow were hoping that they'd be then bailed out by the eurozone because they were operating the same currency. Uh, and therefore they couldn't, you know, their, their imprudent fiscal policy couldn't result in a devaluation because, you know, they were linked to Germany and the euro and they couldn't be deva- forced to devalue, which is normally what happens to countries who start to spend a lot more than they can afford. You know, their sure. currency goes down, but their currency couldn't go down. Uh, and so they were end up in a, in a pretty horrible position. So the Treasury said, look, one thing we know is that that option of just becoming independent, having your own fiscal policy, but keeping the pound is not going to happen. We're just not going to agree that because there's a then, you know, you are you can run your own fiscal policy and spend as much as you like. But we're left holding the baby. You know, we're left bailing you out because we have got, you know, you've got our currency. And so the Treasury articulated that in a very clear way. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, and there's polling evidence to support it, that that was pretty decisive in the end, because there were enough people in Scotland who were, even if they didn't understand exactly the process that I've just described to you, they could hear that they weren't going to be able to have the pound. And they weren't being told that they were going to move into the euro. So there was then a simple question is, well, what are we going to have in our wallets then? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, and uh, it was going to be a Scottish pound or a groat or something. Um, sure. And that was going to be a very risky thing. And, and quite a lot of people, particularly younger women, oddly, um, sort of looked at that and said, you know what, that's a bit risky. And mm. the polls switched back from a, at one point a sort of slight majority in favour of independence to a reasonable majority against. And it looks as if the currency issue was quite important in in that. Or in, in that portion of the book, um, both the, the 2013 publishing of a piece called Scotland's Future, um, and I'm going to quote the, the, what you wrote for the piece, quote, it argued that retention of sterling with shared ownership of the Bank of England was in the interest both of Scotland and the UK as a whole, end quote. And I think you did a very good job of explaining why would the UK accept this? Why would we want to share our institutions? Um, and why do we have to get in, involved with, with that kind of mess? Um, so to follow on in your chapter on Europe, um, we have a, an FCA regulated entity um, under our company. Um, I was very interested in the chapter, but I have to read a quote that you have out of it because it's just, it, it's so brilliant um, and so apropos to, for today. Um, Quote, 
and you're speaking of yourself, at a meeting of the European Monetary Institute, the precursor to the European Central Bank, charged with the preparations for the euro in Frankfurt, a few days later, I explained the changes, which was obviously, you know, you becoming that, you know, you creating the FSA, changes to my colleagues, to a man, they all were, they asked why the bank had not refused to agree the change. I explained that a new government with a large majority had parliamentary approval for the transfer of functions. We could not resist such a clear democratic mandate. That was regarded as an irrelevant detail. Central banks answered to a higher authority themselves, end quote. It sounds so insular, but it's true. <laughs> That's why it's laughable. Do doesn't this also sound like the current problem? Because you were speaking about it from a regulatory perspective where why would the bank have even give up certain powers and, and privileges? Um, but then the flip side could be had for it's so insular, it could also be damaging when it's wrong. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, that that's uh, written with slight tongue-in-cheek, though it's pretty close to uh, the truth. Um, uh, and, the you know, the, the danger of very independent central banks uh, is that they do become uh, a law unto themselves. Uh, and I think probably uh, in the UK we avoid that to some degree because we do have quite a strong accountability nexus to Parliament. And we have this system of writing letters. You know, if the Bank of England is outside the inflation target, it has to write a public letter and explain why it is and what it's going to do as a result. And so the UK system probably does have more checks and balances than most. Uh, and some parts of um, Europe, uh, you know, that's been a long way from this case. I mean, until fairly recently, if you asked what the salary of the governor of the Bank of Italy was, you were told to go and mind your own business. <laughs> Literally. I mean, you know, extraordinary things like that. So they were just uh, completely, you know, not disclosed. Uh, and so this whole question of sort of transparency and accountability in central banks, I think is rather an important one. Um, and at that time, you know, they definitely saw themselves as part of a sort of priesthood, which uh, where other people, uh, you know, should not intervene. Uh, and they knew best. Now, that's no longer the fashion. Uh, public institutions, you know, can't get away with that stuff. Sure. Uh, and so uh, things have changed quite a lot. And I don't think you'd find central bankers uh, arguing uh, for that. But, you know, there are still quite different practices. I mean, for example, you know, in the um, in the Fed, we know who dissented from the Fed decisions. They are, sure. Those dissents are recorded. Uh, in the UK, we know in the Monetary Policy Committee, we know who's voted for what, for an increase or not, and that's published. Uh, in the ECB, no chance. Uh, you know, they, there's no record of the votes in the ECB Council. Uh, occasionally, one or two people have broken ranks and said, I voted against, but it's never recorded. You don't know who they had, how the government of the Bank of Italy has voted uh, ever. Um, so, that kind of accountability is lacking in some parts of the world, including, and particularly, I think, at the ECB. Like I said earlier, Howard, I could go on for probably a couple of days with you. I, I probably owe you dinner and a drink because I'm having too much fun. Um, but but before, um, before I let you go, um, we didn't get to your chapter on the structure of the Treasury and the talent at the Treasury, which I thought was a very interesting way to think about the competitiveness of the Treasury, your chapter on leadership. Um, we didn't get to, and your, your last chapter on the trouble head kind of asking the questions of what's next. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you do think needs to be mentioned for, for your awesome book? 
Well, I think that this point about um, relative pay uh, was quite striking as I looked at it. I mean, I produced the figures that in the mid-70s, the a mid-ranking Treasury official uh, had a salary. You know, ha- the average house price was one and a half times roughly uh, a mid-ranking Treasury official salary in, in, mm-hmm. sort of in London. And it's now eight times uh, that salary. And so, you know, the ratio of, uh, of salaries to house prices in London and Treasury officials is just dramatically different. And eventually, you know, this is producing a problem of quantity and quality uh, in sure. the Treasury. Now, you know, because it's such an exciting place to work and you can see this week, you know, I mean, if I said to you, where would you find it most interesting to work this week? I think your protest answer, I imagine, would be the Treasury. It'd be fascinating to be there to try to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. what, what they're going to do with a new Chancellor. But, you know, if I said to you, well, will you do that for 500 quid a week? You know, well, maybe <laughs> you, you might do it for a few weeks, but you wouldn't <laughs> do it for the rest of your life. And so there is a there is a serious issue at the moment, I think, of, of quality. And I think it's something that we're going to have to address. You know, either we're prepared to pay civil servants a bit more uh, and not use them always as the kind of economic indicator, you know, that you cut civil service pay when you're in trouble. Um, Or, you know, we're going to end up with something more like the American system where there are more and more people brought in for short periods. You know, the American Mm. system has political appointees much further down the chain than we have typically had. Uh, And I think we're, we're running to the point where, we're going to have to decide which direction we want to go. You know, if you take, say, the US and Singapore are the extremes here. You know, in Singapore, big officials in the regulator, the central bank, the treasury, uh, get paid a figure that is comparable to the big people, the figures that they would get if they were working in comparable private sector occupations. So, for example, the head of the regulator uh, gets the average salary of a senior partner of an accounting firm, a senior partner in a law firm, uh, and a the head of a division of a bank. And you take mm. those three numbers, you monitor them, you average it, and that's where you get. Okay? Sure. Ah, so, now, that's one approach, but that produces you regulators who are paid a million pounds a year. Yeah. Uh, at the other extreme, you've got the US, where people are paid almost nothing at the SEC, 200,000. You're the most important regulator in the planet. Uh, is sure. paid two hundred thousand dollars. Now, where do you want to put yourself on that uh, on that spectrum? And at the moment, I fear we're moving to a position which doesn't make any sense. You know, we're just holding down salaries, but nor are we going to the situation like in the US, where you pull in people for a period of their career who've made a lot of money in a law firm and who are prepared to spend four years in the SEC and who are really smart. You know, sure. but they're only prepared to do it. I think we've got to move in one direction or the other. And at the moment, I think we're in a position which is not really tenable. An excellent point. Um, yeah, you made me think uh, if we're paying the SEC uh, officials so little, no wonder they want to sue so many people too. Um, <laughs> so that would be the, the, the tongue-in-cheek way to look at it, to your point earlier. Um, well, Howard, I, I've had just a ton of fun today. I loved your book. Uh, thank you again for joining. Um, our listeners, just so you're aware, I put Howard's book up alongside two other outstanding books um, that I really believe, like like his book does, explain monetary structures and histories in the UK. Um, those other two books are Lombard Street by Walter Badgett, and then the other is titled Badgett 
by James Grant, which was published in the last couple of years. Um, I really appreciate uh, Howard joining us. Our podcast listeners need to get a copy of Howard's book today, The Chancellors. Um, I highly recommend it. For our audience, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeetcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.